Well, good morning again. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And as you turn there, I have a question for you. What kind of children or what kind of child were you towards your parents? <laughs> it's a pretty loaded question, isn't it? Proverbs 23, my mom, my mom sent me this verse this past week. Proverbs 23, verse 24 and 25 says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Isn't that what every parent longs for? Even as we think of Father's Day today, I think the greatest gift our, our children could ever give us is a righteous life, a life lived in Christ. And so as we ponder that question, uh, I look to my own experience of uh, what kind of child I was to my parents, and uh, they sort of got both experiences. <laughs> yes, maybe a righteous child in my later years, but especially my teenage and younger years, I was a wild child. Anyone else can relate with that? <laughs> Who gave their parents a really hard time? <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us in this room did. And, and as we reflect on fatherhood and as we re reflect on our responsibilities as children, uh, the section we're in in Hebrews today actually has a lot to do with understanding God as Father. And it has to do a lot with the story of the Exodus. Because uh, if we remember last week, Jesus was compared with someone. What person was Jesus compared with? Moses, right? And the major narrative of the story of Moses is the story of the Exodus. And, and it's pretty interesting when we look at the story of the Exodus, it's, it's a really fascinating story of people who were in slavery becoming freedom, uh, finding freedom. But another major theme in the Exodus story is that of sons. Because this is, this is a difficult question, but does anyone know in the Bible where is the first time in the story of the Bible where God is referred to as Father? Does anyone know? I've sort of hinted at it already. The story of the Exodus. Good job. That's why I brought up Exodus first. I was trying to set you guys up to win, all right? But it's, it's pretty wild that the first time in Scripture in the history of God's relationship with His people that He's referred to as Father is actually the story of the Exodus. And it says this in Exodus 4. It says, Thus says Yahweh, Israel, the people of God, is my son, my firstborn. And then he says the famous phrase that would be repeated to Pharaoh over and over again, let my people go, right? Release them from their slavery. Bring them into freedom. And it's interesting that the, the clarification of referring to God as Father there, it says, let my people go that they may do what? That they may serve me and worship me. And so this is the first time in the, the story of God that Scripture refers to God as Father. And, and this event really teaches us something about the concept of Father because this entire story of the Exodus 
when we look at the narrative of, of people from freedom to slavery, there, there's also this language of people becoming slaves to sons, to co-heirs of God, to those who receive the promises of God. And so the Exodus narrative reveals to us this relationship that we can refer to God as Father and relate to God as Father. And the Israelites were enslaved, but they were called to be sons and find freedom and rest in the Father. But it also has this theme of serving God. And calling God Father also has the implication of serving Him and living for Him. And, and this is why this next section of Scripture for us this morning is, is quite fascinating because we're going to jump into sort of the next narrative story of the Exodus. Now, who knows what happens after the Exodus? What's the massive story, though? God sets His people free. He delivers them. He relates to them as Father. He brings them into His family. And they go out, and He has all this beautiful rest in the promised land promised for them. And yet, as they're traveling, where do they end up? The Red Sea, they crossed the Red Sea, and now they're doing what? They're in the desert. They're wandering in the wilderness. And how long do they wander in the wilderness for? 40 years. Was that God's plan for them? No, He wanted to give them rest. He wanted to bring them into the promised land. He wanted to give them everything they longed for, and yet they rebelled against His plan and therefore did not receive the rest that God has for them. And, and so we, we read the story in Hebrews today of this story of the wilderness. That's going to be a major theme that comes out in our story of Hebrews is the people walking through the wilderness, rejecting the purposes and plans of God, and missing out on His rest. And so I ask the question then, when we think about what kind of children are we towards our parents, what kind of child are you before God? Have you thought of that question? Because when we read the story of the people walking through the wilderness, after they had been set free, as they had been adopted into the family of God, what kind of children were the Israelites to God in the wilderness? What do we see them doing? We see them rebelling. We see them grumbling. We see them complaining. Anyone do that with their parents? This is where all our hands are. <laughs> Who here has not rebelled or grumbled or complained against our parents? This, this is what the Israelites were doing. And, and we, we know this experience as parents, don't we? Have you ever had this wonderful experience that you planned for your kids or your parents had planned for you and you had all these things set up and you just wanted to give them such a beautiful time and experience and yet the kid has a meltdown? Anyone experience that? It's crazy to me. I've been to Disney World before, and it blew my mind because Disneyland is called the happiest place on earth, isn't it? And yet, what do you see a lot of kids doing? Crying and complaining and melting down. I mean, I remember seeing this kid crying because he couldn't get ice cream, right? Here you are in the greatest place on earth, and yet you're grumbling and you're complaining and you're rebelling. And that is such a picture of us in our relationship with God, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves. And, and what happens then when we, when we have that type of response to God our Father, 
when we grumble and complain and we rebel against Him and we walk our own path and do what we want to do, we actually miss out on a lot. We miss out on so much that God has for us. We miss out on the abundance of life that He wants to bless us with. We miss out on the rest that God has for us as His children. And so the passage we're going to read this morning has a lot to do with that understanding of the narrative, not just of Israel in the wilderness and their rebelling against Him and their wandering away from God, but in many ways it has specifically to do with our lives and how so easily we can wander away from the good purposes and good plans that our God, our Father, has for us. And so we're going to look at this story together. We're going to examine it together. And then we're going to really try and bring it into our context and our world and our relationship with God. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 3, verse 7. And so again, last week we talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses. In other words, Moses brought deliverance of people in the Exodus and he brought the law, but Jesus himself is the one who brings a new Exodus. And the new Exodus is our our greatest enslavement is to what? To sin. And yet God frees us and forgives us from our sin, bringing a new exodus, the ultimate exodus. And now we continue the story of, well, what happens after the exodus in the Old Testament? The story of wilderness. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to bring up in our context. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Let's read this together. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... And we can say today, church, today those of you who don't know God, if you hear His voice, don't do what? Don't harden your hearts towards God. Don't harden your hearts toward God as in the rebellion. What's the rebellion? On the day of testing where? In the wilderness. He's bringing up the story out of Exodus, the people wandering through the wilderness. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for, again, how long did they wander? Forty years. God says, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. In other words, everything I had planned for them, they rejected. Therefore, they're not going to receive it. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. In other words, take care, church. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. And if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't do what? Don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Therefore, chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, in other words, it's still possible to experience the rest of God, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not, hear this theme again, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, who was Joshua? Joshua is the one who led them where? Into the promised land. But he's saying there's a greater rest. It's not about a land. It's not about a space. There's a greater rest that God has. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Pretty intense passage, isn't it? And so what's, what's going on here? I know this is a massive, massive story that we're navigating through, but what's going on? Well, first of all, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, so he has a lot of expectations for his audience to already know a lot of the Old Testament stories. And yet most of us, we're not very good with Old Testament stories, are we? And yet the, the major story that he's bringing up in this passage is the story of the wilderness wandering of God's people. And so the wilderness wandering God's people. Now, was this a positive experience for the people of God? No. What kind of experience was it? What do we see a lot of? Yeah, a whole generation dying off in 40 years, never entering the promised land, right? Now, why didn't they enter the promised land? We see a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining, a lot of doubting God's purpose. If you remember, as, as God delivered them out of Egypt, and he's bringing them into the land of Canaan where they were promised to settle, 
If you remember, God told them to send 12 spies, in other words, 12 people to go see if they could settle in that land. And, and as the 12 go to see if they could settle in the land of Canaan, what happens to them? What did they end up deciding? They decided not to go. Why? Out of fear. They, they doubted God's purposes. They, they doubted what God could accomplish for them. They, they doubted what God had for them. Now here we are, talking about a people who had just been miraculously delivered from slavery, miraculously delivered through the Red Sea, who saw the power and might of God's deliverance and what he could accomplish for them. And as he has this next stage where they need to show faith and obedience, what do they say? Say, no, we don't trust you anymore. We don't believe in what you can accomplish anymore. And where did that take them? Wilderness wandering. And so I know this map is a little small, but you can see we're not talking about a large space that they wandered for. In other words, the, the promised land was there for them in the land of Canaan, right? That was where God wanted them to settle. But where do we see them wandering? All through here, all through here, not knowing where to go. Why? Because they doubted what God had for them. They lost trust and they wandered for 40 years. And we see Moses the one who led them out of the um, exodus, but he's also the one who leads them through the wilderness. And this wilderness becomes a time and space of the testing of God's people. And they wander and they doubt and they don't enter the promised land. Now, the, the, the point of this passage in Hebrews then is to take that story of the wilderness and bring it into our own context. And it says, just as people were disobedient to the purposes and plans for which God had had for them through Moses, we too can be disobedient to the purposes and plans that God has for us today. And the warning here in the text is that if, if Jesus is greater than, who did we learn about last week? If Jesus is greater than Moses, if Jesus has a greater deliverance in Exodus than Moses, if, if Jesus has a greater rest than what Moses had to offer, how much more are the consequences going to be for us if we don't follow Jesus for what he has for us? How great the consequences will be in rejecting Jesus and God's plan for us. And so you might be thinking, well, what is this story thousands of years ago about uh, um, an ancient people in an ancient time across the world? What does it have to do with us? How does their story tie in with ours? Well, think about it. God announced to them this good news of deliverance. God announced to them that they could find a rest in Him. God announced to them that they could be freed from slavery and find perfect peace in Him. But they didn't believe that. And so they missed out on everything that God had for them. And they wandered in the desert miserably for 40 years. Now, how does that apply to our lives? It's the exact same thing, isn't it? 
God has given us good news in Jesus that he can deliver us and free us from our sin, that he has a life of abundance and peace and joy for us, that we can find a rest in him, that we can find everything that we were created to be as humans in him, and yet what do we do? We wander. We take our own path. We walk through the wilderness of our own lives, walking away from God rather than his purposes for us. And so the, the main point of the story here is that we can still miss out. We can miss out of God's promised rest if we harden our hearts and don't listen to Jesus. And so really this is a story about hardening our hearts towards God. It's time when we can't reject God, we can't harden our hearts before Him because then we are going to miss the blessings and plans that He has for us by rebelling against His purposes and we miss out on the very essence of God's rest. And so what is this rest? I mean, this is a major theme that we see throughout this, this passage, this rest of God, this rest of God, this rest of God. What are we talking about when we talk about the rest of God? Well, uh, for the Israelites, what was their understanding of the rest of God? What were they walking towards in the wilderness? They were walking towards the promised land, right? That was where they thought rest would be found when they entered in the land of Canaan. In other words, they were free of conflict. They were free of slavery. They could find peace. They could find shalom. They could find everything that they had longed for. But Hebrews 1 or 4.1 tells us that it's more than that. Because Hebrews 4.1 says the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, it still exists today. It's still available today, which means it's much more than just the promised land that the Jews were expecting. It's, it's much more than just this physical place of abundance and prosperity and peace and shalom. It, it says it's actually existed for a lot longer than that. See, it says this in verse 4 as well. It says, His works of rest were finished from the foundation of the world, for He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And so where do we find this story of God's rest? And I love the way that the Hebrews writer uh, sort of mentions it. He says, somewhere it talks about the seventh day in this way, Right? Now, clearly for us, where do we talk about seven days on? Creation. Creation, back to Genesis, seven, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, right? And so here we're, we're brought back to the story of where does the rest of God originate? The rest of God originates where? Any guesses? In creation. See, here's this fascinating story. When we see the structure and systems of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. We see that creation is split up into seven different days, right? Now, what's really neat to notice is that in days 1 to 6, there's a clause in each of them. There's a clause that says it was morning and it was evening. In other words, there's a structure around it. There's a day. There's an understanding of structure there. And for each of the six days referenced in creation, there's this concept that it was morning and it was evening. But when we get to the seventh day, guess what? It doesn't reference a morning and evening. 
Now, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. Now, here's the beautiful implication when you study that section of Scripture. And the implication that the rabbis would have and the implication that we have today is that the promise of God's rest on the seventh day isn't bound to a morning and evening, which means that it's what? It's forever. It's infinite. It's eternal. In other words, the rest of God is accessible from creation itself for eternity. From the very onset of creation, the very purpose of humanity was to experience the rest of God for eternity. And so there's this beautiful pattern of the rest of God being ongoing and eternal. And therefore, at the start of humanity, there is this sense where God is at rest and he's inviting humanity into his rest. In other words, the rest of God is available from creation itself. Now, what did that rest look like in the Garden of Eden before sin? It was this perfect relationship with God. It was this perfect relationship with others. It was this perfect relationship with creation. And it was this perfect relationship with self. And so that's what the rest of God looked like from the beginning of creation. It looked like what we would call shalom, perhaps. It looked like this beautiful aspect of being peace with everything around you. And yet, what did humanity do to distort that? Everything. We rebelled. We chose our own way. We chose our own path. We entered into our own wilderness, so to say, where we still are as humanity. Talk about more than 40 years, right? And so the rest of God is, is available for us, but we as humanity rejected it. And so the, a massive narrative of the scripture is, is God bringing people back into his rest, back into this beautiful place where we could experience the life of God. Now, what does this rest look like in a practical way? I was, I was contemplating this a little bit. What does this rest of God look like in a very practical sense? Well, if God is creator and we relate to God as father, there's some beautiful implications. When we look at the garden story, God created humanity out of love, amen? That's the, Amen? That's a massive implication that we were created beings by a God who created us out of love. Out of love. And the beautiful thing there is we, we see in this creation account, God creates humanity out of love and acceptance. And, and we realize that what, what's crazy in the Genesis account is that after humanity sins, they realize something. They realize that they are what? They are... Does anyone know they begin to get a bunch of fig trees and hide themselves because they're naked? I was like, no one wants to yell out naked in church. That's okay. <laughs> they're naked, right? Why? Be because they realized something had changed after sin entered in the world. They, they realized they needed to hide. They realized that something was wrong. Now, before that, the realize, realization they had was because they didn't have to hide. Why? 
because they enjoyed the love and acceptance of God. There was nothing to hide from. There was nothing to cover up about. And now that they sin and that love and acceptance is fractured because of sin, because of the human condition of sin, we are always trying to prove ourselves now. We are always trying to justify ourselves. And so we hide because we feel guilty. We hide because we feel shame. We hide because we know we're not doing the right thing. And yet Jesus comes ultimately to give us the ultimate rest by covering us with his righteousness. Now, another neat thing that happens in creation that gives us a rest as humanity is that God gives us an identity. What's the identity that God gives us in creation? That we are made in what? His image. In other words, there's a value, there's a dignity there. And and so this takes us back to the nakedness in the Garden of Eden. And one of the primary ways that we try to cover ourselves in this life is is we, we try to make ourselves feel significant and we try to make ourselves of something of value. And primarily, how do we do that in this world? We do it through our work. We try and prove that we can bring something of value to this world. We try to prove our significance in this world. And often that is done by what we can do and accomplish by what we can accomplish to establish worth and value. And so we're constantly fighting to prove ourselves and feel good about ourselves by establishing an identity and building an identity. And who has found that absolutely exhausting in life? (laughs) It's absolutely exhausting. And yet the rest of God that we find from the beginning of creation, and especially in Jesus, is that we are given an identity in our very being. That we realize that there is nothing that we could do or nothing we could be that can make God love us or accept us even more. This is this beauty in a rest when we realize we don't have to strive for identity. And so again, in creation, we see God's love and acceptance. We see his identity. Uh, But another beautiful thing we see the creation of count to give us rest is God gives us this beautiful provision, amen? I mean, what did humanity do to earn anything in creation? I mean, what did you guys do to earn anything with the, the trees and the animals and the oceans and the lakes and the rivers? We did nothing, right? We literally inherited it all. We were literally gifted with it all. God provided for us as humans in a way that absolutely blows our minds. And we realize then that God as creator is this father who desperately meets our needs. And yet we so often in life function the complete opposite way, don't we? We feel like we have to do everything to survive. We feel like we have to continually accomplish and thrive, that we continually have to pursue and work just so that we can meet and make our ends meet. Who feels like that at times, right? It's a constant grind. And and yet, especially in this theme of rest, well, what did God command us to do with the seventh day? To rest. 
Why rest? It's to remind ourselves that this habit of Sabbath rest in Scripture is this habit of reminding ourselves that we are not in control, that God is the one who provides. Therefore, I can step back from my work and needing to provide for myself and my family and others, knowing that is in God's hands, that God is in control and God will provide. And again, you, you think about this perspective from an agrarian society where, where you're literally working so that you can eat. You're picking weeds, you're, you're harvesting so that you can literally eat and survive. And this is saying, nope, you're not going to do that for a day. That's literally threatening to your life, isn't it? And so it's this deep trust, in essence, that God will provide for you. And so the Sabbath rest is supposed to be built into our lives to remind us of dependency on God. Now, here's another wild thing, too, in this God's provision. Every night, as humans, we have to do what? We have to sleep. Do you know there's a theology of sleep? There's a purpose and meaning behind sleep? Because when you sleep, what are you accomplishing? You're accomplishing nothing, though, technically, right? You're not working towards anything. You're, you're not accomplishing anything. And, and even this, this, this understanding of sleep, this understanding of this rhythm of sleep that we have to step back and rest, we have to step back and not strive and work because we realize, wait a second, there's things beyond our control. There's things that are out of our control. There's things that need to happen. And yet when we rest, when we sleep, we can trust that God will provide in the midst of it. And so God even designed sleep to remind us that we are not God, that we are not ultimately the one in control. And so this, this is a key indication in your trust for God and how you understand his provision. Because who here goes to sleep at times worried and anxious? Anyone? A little confession time? right? Sometimes we go to sleep worried and anxious because we still want to control. We still have this anxiousness about, well, is God good? Is he going to deal with this? Is he going to handle this? Is he going to make this right? And we go to sleep with anxiousness and worry because we realize, wait, now that I'm stepping away, things are out of my control. And that's a scary thing sometimes. And it takes trust in God's provision. And, and so this is a vision of rest, and there's so much more that could be said of this beautiful theme of rest, but this is what it is. So, so how do we miss this in our lives? We miss it in so many ways, but Hebrews talks about this in, in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. It says, "...in whom did he swear would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient." So we see that they were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. And so those who walked through the wilderness, why didn't they get to experience the rest of God? They didn't trust God. They didn't have a confidence in his rest. Now, now here's what, what's, what's wild. I, I think we often have such a simplistic view of unbelief. I think we have a very narrowed and skewed understanding of what belief and faith is. Because we think of belief and we think of it's pretty casual and we think it more intellectually and cognitively. And so we say all these belief statements. 
We can say, I believe that it's going to be a nice day, or I believe that the Oilers are going to win the cup, and yet does that come into fruition? No. But so often when we say belief statements, it's actually detached from reality and how we act. Could you imagine if all the members of the Edmonton Oilers said, I believe we are going to win the Stanley Cup this year, but none of them practiced? Do you think it would accomplish anything? No, it would point out that their belief and what they think they believe is very disconnected from reality, isn't it? Whereas when we talk about belief in God and trusting in God, there's this element that there has to be some connection between the element of cognitive thought and actually reality of how we live in life. So many people give a lip service to saying, I believe in Jesus or I follow Jesus, but their lives are completely detached from that reality, right? And, and even the Israelites through the wilderness, it would have been very easy to say, oh yeah, we trust God, we believe in God, and yet they're wandering away from the purposes that he had for them, right? And, and so how do we miss it? We miss it because of unbelief. We, we miss it because we can give lip service to something and not actually act it out. You see, belief is tested when it's actually act upon. I, I've heard someone say it like this, faith is faithfulness. Does that make sense? When you believe something, it's going to bring out an implication into your life. When you say you have faith in God, it's going to lead to faithfulness in your life. And so the reason that they missed it is because they disconnected, they hardened their hearts, they doubted God's purposes for their life. And we do this in so many little ways in our life. We, we doubt and we miss out what God has for us because we say, well, this isn't going to work in my life. We say, oh, God tells me to have a Sabbath day or to rest, but I need to provide, I need to work. This isn't going to work for me. I need to accomplish something. This isn't going to work for me. Uh, we think that God is holding out something good for us. We, we have this fear of missing out. Anyone heard of that phrase before, FOMO? Fear of missing out, where we doubt God's goodness and we think we should take our own path. We, we think that God is holding out something from us. And so we, we, we harden our hearts in so many ways towards God that we miss this beautiful rest that he has for us. And so how do we get it? How do we actually receive and experience this rest? Verse 9 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him. Again, pointing us back to the Genesis story of God wanting us to include us in his rest for eternity. And then verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, this is sort of an interesting paradox in verse 11, isn't it? We get rest by striving for it. Isn't that an interesting paradox? We get rest, we receive the rest of God when we strive for it. To enter that rest, it says in verse 11, we strive. 
Well, how do we strive for this rest? What does it mean? What's he getting at? Well, one of the major things that the writer of Hebrews is bringing up over and over again is consider who? Pay attention to who? To who? To Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Study Jesus. Know Jesus. Strive for Jesus. He's saying what you need to do to enter in this rest is you need to strive. You need to put everything in your being towards knowing and experiencing Jesus. Why? Because it's only in Jesus that we know that we're loved and accepted and we don't have to work to prove ourselves. It's only in Jesus that we realize that God loves us more than we could ever know or fathom. It's only in Jesus that we have an identity that we don't have to strive and work for. It's only in Jesus that we realize there's nothing that we have done that can make God love us less. It's only in Jesus that we don't have to prove ourselves to find acceptance and love. That's why he says, look over and over for Jesus It's only in Jesus that we realize that God has provided everything so that we could rest. And so what he's saying then is you need to internalize the gospel. You need to internalize who Jesus is and begin to live your whole life and your whole existence from a place of resting in Jesus. That is the only way that you're going to experience the rest of God. And so... Here's the problem we face, though. God wants us to experience this rest, but we have to strive for it. We have to work for it. And what often happens in our life is instead of striving for Jesus, what do we strive for? Ourselves. Literally anything else. We strive, we live for, we we worship, so to say, so many other things than Jesus. And as we strive for anything other than Jesus, where do we find ourselves? In the wilderness, in the desert, wandering apart from God's rest. And so it's it's considering Jesus that we find our rest. And so when we strive for anything other than Jesus, we need a warning. And this is where the Word of God comes in. And there's this beautiful statement here. And I think a lot of us have heard this statement before, but we've never heard it in its context. And verse 12 says this. It says, For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than what? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so why is Scripture brought up here? He's saying the gospel story in Scripture has a way of working itself past all our lip service, doesn't it? We can say a lot of things about belief. We can say a lot of things about faith. But when we come to the Word of God, what does it do to our lives? It brings out the reality, doesn't it? It pierces to the truth, so to say. It reveals what's actually going on in our hearts. It reveals the actual gap between what I say I believe and what I do. And and so this, this scripture reveals to us how we actually choose to strive for things apart from Jesus rather than striving for Jesus and experiencing the rest of God. 
And so Scripture plays this massive role in our lives of experiencing God's rest because it tells us and points to us all the ways that we're striving for something apart from Jesus. And so the theme then of all of Hebrews is is pay attention to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the goat. What does goat mean again? Greatest of all time. Jesus is the greatest. Therefore, pay attention. Pursue him. This is why Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, come to me. Who? All of you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Jesus is bringing out this massive theme of Scripture that again goes back to Genesis, that the only rest you're going to find in this world is in Jesus himself. And so how do we get it? How do we experience? First of all, it's understanding the gospel story. It's understanding who you are in God. It's understanding everything that God has accomplished for you so you don't have to. It's understanding that as exhausting as life feels, God cares for you. And God wants you to enter in his rest. And and so there's many things that you could do to practice this. There's a way of simply sitting before God, reflecting on all the things that God has already done to meet your needs. I mean, when you actually think about it and you wake up in the morning and you feel like you have to strive for something and work for something, have you ever just sat there and said, wow, God, you have provided so much for me already. Why am I striving for anything apart from you? There's so much peace there. There's, there's an understanding of, of Sabbath rhythm in our life. There's this understanding of patterns and taking time off to rest to remind us that our time doesn't even belong to us. Our time is a gift from God. Therefore, we can be released from striving in and of itself. But the biggest thing that Hebrews brings up is that when we strive for Jesus and when we understand the gospel, That is the only way that we will experience the rest of God. But when we strive for anything else, where are we going to end up in life? The wilderness. Grumbling, complaining, miserable, never receiving what God has for us. And so my prayer for us, church, is that we would be a people who truly consider Christ that we strive to know the depths of the gospel so that we would be a people of rest, a people not of anxiousness or worry, a people that don't need to strive for provision and security and safety, but we can rest in the presence of God. And my prayer for anyone in this room who isn't a Christian is that as you look at your own life and as you look at everything you've been striving for, My guesses are, in many ways, all those things have let you down. All those things have created more exhaustion in your life. All those things have overwhelmed you. All those things have burdened you. And yet Jesus himself, when we strive for him, that's when we will truly experience the rest of God that we were created to experience from the beginning of creation. So let me pray to that extent.
Gracious Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, as often a restless people, a people who are so often striving for things apart from you. We strive by creating our own meaning. We strive by creating our own identity. We strive by creating our own purposes. We strive by creating our own significance. And yet as we strive for those things, we often realize that we are left in a desert, longing for something more, realizing that there is something greater beyond what we can create for ourselves. And it's because it's only when we strive for you that that rest in life is fulfilled, that peace in life is fulfilled. And so I pray that we as the church that even we as non-believers in the room this morning would realize that all the striving we create for ourselves is meaningless. But when we strive for you, we find the significance and meaning and identity and value and purpose that we were created to experience. And so may the story of the wilderness from the Israelites be a warning to us realizing that there is even greater consequences to not following the rest that is found in Jesus. And so we pray that you would just come before us today, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, allow us to strive to enter into your rest, the rest that produces perfect peace, perfect shalom in our lives. Lord, we know that you are a good father, who longs for us to experience, yet we are so often like rebellious children who want to do our own thing and walk our own path. And so we thank you that you are a God who is patient with us. Like a loving father, you walk with us with care and compassion. You walk with us waiting for us to return to everything you have for us. Let us do so for our joy in your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.